the prevalence, if you want to call it that, it's estimated to be affecting over a billion persons worldwide. Like this is a big, 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 big problem. And only maybe one in five has been sniffed out and diagnosed. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. On this podcast, I talk health and well-being Mondays and Thursdays. Now, forgive me if you've heard one version or other of that introduction more than once. Indeed, you could have heard it 10, 20, 50, 100 times at this stage. I've done it so many times. In fact, today, this episode will mark the 348th time that I've given that introduction and I'm having to continue to do so simply because there's been such an increase in listeners, downloaders and subscribers in recent weeks. So I feel like I have to introduce myself to them and just let them know what this podcast is all about because many of them are first time listeners. So forgive me if you're not a first time listener. Thank you, though, for sticking with me and giving me your support. It is very, very much appreciated. And uh, on that note, too, you can support me in another way because you can head over to Instagram or indeed YouTube because what I've done recently is popped some of the interviews I've been doing up onto the Happy Habit Podcast YouTube channel. So if you want to actually see the interviews as opposed to just listening to them, you can head over to YouTube. And there's been a huge interest in the Professor Robert Lustig interview I did on glucose and on sugar killing us a few weeks ago, about a six. 1,000 plus downloads of that particular video on YouTube. So a lot of interest there. So if you want to watch that and some other interviews I've uploaded in recent weeks, head over there and you'll see some clips of upcoming interviews on my Instagram page too. Again, just search for the Happy Habit podcast on Instagram. Question. Do you have trouble sleeping? Are you exhausted all the time? Do you snore? Perhaps you don't, but you still don't get a good quality sleep. Have you ever considered you may have sleep apnea? Well, in this episode, I'm joined by sleep apnea specialist, Dr. Dave McCarty, who has worked in this area, taking a patient-centered approach to treat sleep apnea sufferers for decades now. In this episode, we hear about the difference between obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea and the reasons one might suffer from each condition. We hear about the impact of sleeping with your mouth open. We discover that one in eight people globally are suffering from sleep apnea. We learn about the health implications of suffering from sleep apnea. We hear about Dr. McCarty's approach to dealing with sleep apnea patients, where he spells out the five reasons to treat. We also learn that you could have sleep apnea and not even know it, because snoring isn't always a symptom of sleep apnea. We also hear about Pickwickian syndrome, which helps to feed the confusion about who ordinarily suffers from sleep apnea. Hint, it's not the stereotypical people you might think of. We discover what CPAP machines are that are used to treat people with this condition and expect to learn how societies move away from breastfeeding to bottle feeding in the last 100 years has actually changed our skulls. We also talk about the efficacy of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. Now, this is a really fascinating discussion. And Dr. Dave McCarty is a man who is passionate about providing the right care to his patients 
which includes educating them about this complex condition. He has such a wealth of knowledge to impart, and I hope you enjoy and find this interview useful. If I can start off by just mentioning your website, it's called EmpoweredSleepApnea.com. Your book, Empowered Sleep Apnea, of the same name. It's a handbook for patients and the people who care about them. And your podcast carries the same name too. And I'd urge listeners to check out the podcast, uh, your book and your website. And uh, the website is not really what you would expect. Uh, You have an artistic flair, Dr. McCarthy. And uh, certainly that's evident on your website and through the book as well. Can I go back to your mantra? Because it seems to me to be one of patient-centred care. This is a way I would have thought of humanising the relationship between you and the patient. Would that be the case? Absolutely. Yeah, patient-centred care to me means not necessarily just leading the patient to the right place. You know, um, many, many physicians sort of approach the practice of medicine as, you know, do you have this problem? And if so, we'll manage the problem and in, uh, in uh, accordance with best practices, you know, and that sounds right. But the problem is people come to us with a set of complaints. They don't come in saying, just manage my sleep apnea. And they come, they come to the doctor saying, you know, I'm not sleeping that well. And I feel crummy. And my partner says that I make noises at night. So we, we have to start with a real kind of complex goo and figure out a way to put structure on it for people. And, and the, the essence of the practice of medicine is all about management of that complexity. And the only way that I know of to do that is, is with a patient centered uh, modality, you know, Um, where instead of showing the patient, the pathway from point A to point B, instead, what we're trying to do is shine a light it's as if we're in a dark cave and, you know, I have a little more training and experience. I can shine the brightest light I can to show you every nook and cranny of this cave that I can. And we'll explore it together and figure out how best to manage, you know, and how best to navigate. Sleep apnea, just to put it into context for people who aren't necessarily familiar with that term, what exactly is it? I know it's it's a complex condition, but can you just put the bare bones of what it means? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I think if you went to, to, to 10 different providers who have seen what sleep apnea is from their perspective, they may give you a slightly different answer. But I'll give you a, a very generic answer, and then we'll talk about why it's complex, okay? So in a generic sense, sleep apnea refers to a spectrum of problems of dysfunctional breathing while asleep, okay? And those breathing patterns can take two forms, and they often overlap. One is called obstructive sleep apnea, and the other is called central sleep apnea. They're different. Obstructive sleep apnea means that when you're sucking in air, the airway gets kind of sputtered shut and it causes a blockage, okay? And that interrupts airflow and can be stressful and causes adrenaline levels to go up and oxygen levels can sometimes drop with that too, okay? So that's obstructive sleep apnea. When that happens over and over again throughout the night, you don't sleep very well. Central sleep apnea is a different type of a problem of breathing during sleep. That's when instead of breathing in a nice, slow, steady rate, one might have an arousal and have several gasping type of breaths. And then immediately upon entering sleep, there is a paused effort to breathe. So this unstable pattern of starting and stopping breathing is called central sleep apnea. And that exists on on a spectrum as well. So when you break down well, why does someone get obstructive sleep apnea? And why does someone get central sleep apnea? 
Then we start to pick that apart and you realize that there's lots of moving parts within each of those, those labels themselves, right? So for obstructive sleep apnea, for example, one possible contributor is the open mouth breathing position. Isn't that odd? Just the posture of breathing with your mouth open puts the tongue a little further back in the throat, right? And um, it, it, it releases the tongue from the, uh, from, the, from the vacuum seal of the palate of the mouth. Not, so now not only is the jaw rotated backwards, but the tongue is allowed to fall back. So for some people who get the diagnosis of sleep apnea, one of the biggest things they can learn to do is breathe with their mouth shut. You know, it's amazing. But that's not going to be on the little trifold handout that you get that says, you know, sleep apnea is caused by a floppy airway and we need to put you on a CPAP machine. So it's very different when you look at it from the patient-centered perspective and you're breaking it apart into sort of the different moving parts of these different disorders than it is if you're looking at it from the label perspective and, you know, I've got a treatment for that and you have this label and here you go, right? It's a completely different thought process. How prevalent is the condition of sleep apnea in society now? And are we seeing more of it than we did, let's say, 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah well, we're definitely seeing more of it because more people are looking for it. Um, and by some estimations, the prevalence, if you want to call it that, it's estimated to be affecting over a billion persons worldwide. Like this is a big, 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 big problem. And only maybe one in five has been sniffed out and diagnosed. Now, what's coming and what is already here in some parts of the United States anyway, is, you know, the, the, the advent of automated testing systems that are basically wearable technology. And so there, there are several systems that are, are now in use. I've, I've seen um, reports coming through on them. And um, what this allows is, is greater reach for diagnos diagnosis of this disorder, which is sort of awesome. You know, yay, we can reach more people. But on the other hand, it also means that a lot of people are going to get this label kind of affixed to them because this little machine was worn on one night and they had a, a score that was high enough to, to land them in the diagnosis. And I don't think that we're yet ready to discuss the complexity of what that's going to do to us because the, the complexity of sleep apnea is such that, you know, the many moving parts of obstructive sleep apnea versus the many moving parts of central sleep apnea and what's best for this individual person. Should we treat this problem? And if so, why, you know, um, that discussion is, is a complex one. And that's the whole mission of the empowered sleep apnea project is to put words to this massive complexity and give people the agency to actually navigate through this in a, in a, in a sensible way, you know, uh, give them back their sense of empowerment. That's what it's all about. Given the complexity that you mentioned there, um, is it possible to put meat on the bones of some of the conditions, the chronic conditions that people can suffer from if they are a sleep apnea sufferer? So this is, again, a very complex discussion. Because, you know, we can get into what I call in the Empowered Sleep Apnea Projects, the five reasons to treat. Okay, so I, this is such an important concept in breaking down this complexity. For the project, I, I, I built a little island, you know, I'm a cartoonist, as you said, and I felt like getting labeled with this diagnosis is sort of like washing up on a crazy island where you, you know, the culture is different, the language is different. And so what we're going to learn to do is, is learn to navigate together. So I actually literally drew a, a treasure map almost. Um, it looks like uh, the stuff that I used to look, look at for hours when I was a kid was the, uh, the the maps on the inside cover of the Peter Pan illustrated edition that I had. I just thought it was so cool. 
And I thought, you know, if we're going to engage a sense of adventure and a sense of willingness to explore, why can't we have a map too? And then all of a sudden it just became obvious. So on the map, the first place you enter is some a place called the Bay of Narrative, because we have to figure out what your story is. And that's going to lead us eventually to something that I call the five reasons to treat monument and coffee hut. Okay. So the monument is basically all about five reasons to treat, which are risk, meaning risk to your life. Sleep apnea does end people's lives early, right? Um, and it, it's not the same for everybody, though. That's the problem. So a discussion about risk really means breaking apart what we know and what we don't know about the different flavors of sleep apnea. We have to understand the jargon so we can understand the scores. Second reasons to treat is snoring. Some people snore with sleep apnea, some people don't. Okay. Just because you don't snore, though, doesn't mean you don't have it because silent sleep apnea is a thing. And many people are just snoring agnostics. They may snore all night long and they just don't know it. Okay. Because they, they're asleep. Um, but depending on how much you snore, that may be a valid reason all by itself because snoring is an environmental terror to the people in the room with you. Snoring is vibrational trauma. There is evidence that links the risk of atherosclerotic buildup in the carotid arteries to the snoring intensity and, and duration at night. You know, that's just from the trauma, the jackhammering that happens in the neck, you know? So snoring is a reason to treat. Um, third reasons to, reason to treat is um, the sleep experience, right? If you're sleeping poorly, sleep apnea is not helping that, okay? So if you're waking up a lot, if you're not, if you're not doing well. Um, fourth reasons to treat is the wake experience. So some people with sleep apnea are sleepy, some people don't feel sleepy, but they feel off. They feel scatterbrained. They have tr trouble multitasking, attention deficit, depression. All of these cognitive, neurocognitive limitations can be part of the problem and can be part of the sleep apnea uh, experience. Fifth reason to treat is comorbidities. Now that's a mouthful, but comorbid conditions are the also ran vulnerable diagnoses. These are things that if sleep apnea, which is physiologically stressful, if sleep apnea is treated, these other problems might get better, okay? And so the list of comorbid conditions that are vulnerable to sleep apnea is longer than my arms, okay? And I'm six foot five. It is really long. And basically anybody who's like wondering whether this condition can be related to sleep apnea somehow, um, there's probably a way you can find that pathway, you know, but high blood pressure, migraine headaches, grinding of the teeth, getting up multiple times a night to urinate, congestive heart failure, inflammatory bowel disease. You know, all of these syndromes can be linked to the nonspecific stress of the up and down of the oxygen or the sleep dis dysfunction and sleep fragmentation. You know, so what I would tell my patients is, you know, take a look at your, at your med list, take a look at your problem list, Think about the things you see doctors and therapists for, and let's talk about those problems because there's a good chance that many things on that list, the sleep apnea is making that worse. And if we get the sleep apnea under control, well, maybe those problems can get better. You know, here's a, here's an interesting connection that a lot of people don't know. So many people suffer from heartburn, reflux, right? It's often worse at night. So that, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, well, I have reflux. And they say, well, we have a pill for that. Let's give you some antacids. You know, so you, you start taking this antacid at night. Well, lo and behold, that when one is trying to breathe, trying to suck air through a, an upper airway that is sucked shut, right? When you're doing that, you are exerting effort with your thorax and you end up pulling stuff out of your stomach up into your thoracic cage, right? So sleep apnea promotes the reflux, right? So 
when we connect those dots and we realize, holy smokes, if we treat the sleep apnea, then maybe we can get you off of this antacid that, by the way, because you've been suppressing stomach acid for the last five years, now you're iron deficient because iron absorption is acid dependent, right? It's like dominoes. So, you know, we got to get ourselves out of this mindset of just assigning these diagnostic labels and then moving on. We have to think about the person's narrative, right? Brings us all back to patient-centered care and and what um, uh, one of my new friends on this journey calls co-discovery. Co-discovery is the process by which provider and patient manage things in tandem, not one leading the other by the nose. Well, talking of labels and ascribing labels to people incorrectly. So the term Pickwickian syndrome comes up. Now, can you tell us the interesting origin of this particular term and how it is so inaccurate as far as people's perception of sufferers of sleep apnea is concerned? Yeah, I, I would say that this is um, this is an example of what I, I call in my in my writing kind of uh, the whole Leviathan of sleep apnea is so complex that many providers have only seen one aspect of it. So if the, if the sea monster is the size of the Titanic, then you know we're a tiny little microbe floating by trying to describe it. But um, the uh, I'm getting away from your question. Remind me again where the, I'm going. The origin, that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Pickwickian. The, the origin yeah, of Pickwickian, Pickwickian syndrome. Yeah. So um, the Pickwick papers was, the posthumous papers of the Pickwick Club was um, Charles Dickens' first novel. It was published in serial form back in the 18-somethings. And um, Sir William Osler, who is kind of my doctor hero, he was the, the first chair of medicine at our uh, uh, Americans, America's first residency program, Johns Hopkins. So um, he described a syndrome that he was noticing in his in young people that young very heavy people who snored were often sleepy okay so there's this sort of this understanding that if you have this triad of snoring at night you're heavy um you you also happen to be sleepy they there there began to be a signal in the medical literature that people who had that triad were dying younger of things like heart failure okay and uh uh, because of that, it became kind of, you know, something that people started to need a name for. And Dr. Osler said, well, you know, these are a lot like a character in the posthumous papers of the Picnic Club, uh, a, a funny little character that made his entrance literally to the book by falling asleep while knocking at the door. It's a character that they just call Fat Joe. So he was, and they had an illustration of this very rotund young man falling asleep and sitting at a table, you know? So um, Dr. Osler said, well, this is not unlike the, the, the fat Joe in the Pickwick paper. So they started to call it Pickwickian syndrome. And there was a lot of debate as to why people with Pickwickian syndrome were sleepy because it was, everyone agreed that, you know, yes, this existed. Now you start to look for it and you have a name for it. You start to see that heavy people are often dozing off. So there's a big debate about why this is. And many people were of a mind that, well, you know, the, all of that weight creates a restrictive pulmonary deficit. You can't, you can't engage your lung bellows as well. So you can't ventilate as well, right? In other words, you can't get rid of your CO2 as well. And um, there was one paper that was published, a case report of a heavy, snoring, sleepy person who was admitted to the hospital with hypercarbic respiratory failure. Basically, his CO2 level was really, really high. So there got to be this legend that people with, with Pickwickian syndrome are sleepy because they have CO2 narcosis. Because, you know, too much CO2 in your bloodstream can make you sleepy. So that was the assumption until the late 60s 
when um, a, a French epileptologist named Henri Gastaut decided that he would use a brand new technique called polysomnography. Okay, this is a polysomnogram is a sleep study, but he and the epileptologist knew how to interpret brain waves, and this guy was really really magnificent and seeing patterns within patterns. So he was one of the pioneers of of the science of the study of epilepsy. And anyway, he decides he's going to use this brand new tool to study someone with Pickwickian syndrome, who actually is heavy, snores, and is sleepy. And what he found during this, this paper, um, during this experiment, this one night study, is that this person was stopping breathing over and over and over again at night. And that was where sleep apnea was born. It was 1967, okay? In 1966, I believe. And, uh, uh, since then, we've thought about sleep apnea through the Pickwickian lens. The medical science has advanced with that lens firmly in front of our face. But it just so happens that in creating the, the scale that we use to rate sleep apnea, which is you know how many of these obstructive events are you having per hour and what kind of obstructive events are they? There's a metric that's called the apnea hypopnea index or the AHI. And using this metric, we can now identify people who meet the standard for you know so many events per hour, but they're not heavy, and they don't snore, and they're not sleepy. Okay, we're getting fit young people now meeting these diagnoses. If you look hard enough, you can find it, and they've got narrower faces than you know what we typically think of as you know your Pickwickian syndrome heavy person. So we're seeing a completely different flavor of this, and it. It is um, a flavor of sleep apnea that often won't go see sleep physicians because they don't want a CPAP mask. So what we start to see is, is a divergence of culture and language because um, there is a whole new emerging field in dentistry called airway-centered dentistry where um, these pioneers are trying to reverse engineer the way our faces are shaped using functional things like, you know, the, how are you swallowing and where is your tongue and things like that. Because all of these things, we now are getting the signal that that's part of the way the shape of the face is sculpted, you know, is, is how a person swallows and breathes and chews. So knowing that, now we start to think about the paradigm of, oh, sleep apnea is a floppy airway problem. Let's put a CPAP machine on that. We start to think about this in a completely different developmental part of our brain. And, and this is all going on. And, and right now that I call them silos of thought, these different silos of thought have a hard time communicating with each other. You know, so one of the, um, the real important messages of the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project is many moving parts, guys. We don't have the corner on the market on all the knowledge. And we need to find a, a language that we can talk about this complexity as a group with our patients so that we can lay it all out on the playing field and we know what we're dealing with. So in, in essence, the blue book uh, which I call the beautiful blue book, because if you if you hold it, it is truly kind of a beautiful thing. That's really what I picture this is. It's it's that it's that message of what this complexity looks like when we all have the language to talk about it. You mentioned the CPAP machine there, just to give people a brief description of exactly what it is and what it does and how it benefits people with sleep. Of course. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah, I'm using some jargon and I apologize for throwing that out without explanation. A CPAP machine um, is a, it stands for continuous positive airway pressure. Okay. It is really nothing more than a glorified air blower that blows air into the airway. And uh, most people can use CPAP with a nasal interface, which I would 
highly recommend if you're going to do that, because I'm not a big fan of the open mouth breathing posture. And the big oronasal masks can sometimes push the, the, the jaw backwards and makes it a little uh, harder to, to get the pressure in there. So you need a higher pressure with those masks too sometimes. But what this does is while you are generating that force to breathe in, you are sucking air through a collapsing tube. And most people can picture if you're trying to drink a milkshake and you've got kind of a floppy paper straw, the, more, the harder you suck, the more that straw is going to collapse. Okay. So that's what happens essentially in the, in the place behind the tongue and the soft palate. When, when a person is sucking to breathe, that gets sucked shut. And that's where the snoring sound is going to be generated from in many cases. And, uh, and that person struggles until, you know, their oxygen gets low enough to set off the alarm bells that says, have a little arousal from sleep, take a couple of breaths and then get back into it again. So the, the CPAP machine is going to be pushing gentle pressure to help keep that co collapse from happening. Good thing. Um, it's very effective for most people. Um, it's probably not for everybody. But many people feel like it's the only option. And so um, one of the things that I would always do with my patients is talk about it in just very realistic terms. CPAP machine, I want this to be gentle to you. You know, I want this to deliver just enough pressure to make you comfortable, but I don't want the thing, you know, blowing you like a, like a, a jet engine. I've had people come to me and say, I tried that once and there's just no way. And when you dig deeper, you find out that what they were, what what was done is a, a perfectly well-meaning technician on the durable medical equipment side provided them a device set on automatic mode, and the automatic mode allows the machine to kind of choose where it goes. And if you set a very wide range, these machines will often kind of they they, they can they can overshoot the target sometimes, and they can cause what I call in the book pressure toxicity symptoms. You know, it's just too high. It's too uncomfortable. So, you know, I treat these CPAP machines like I'm sending somebody home with a dog. You know, you don't want the dog to do whatever it's going to what's to do. It'll just abuse you, you know. So I, I like to train it. I like to set up a very specific range and I like to follow up with it and make sure that it's not mistreating you, <laughs> you know. So again, my, my you get me talking about CPAP, you're gonna you're gonna keep me going if you let me. Well, can we revisit the oral cavity as far as the anatomy is concerned? Is it true that our skulls have changed over the last one hundred years, and this has got something to do with the lack of uh, of children being breastfed now, as opposed to historically? Yeah, yeah. So this this signal is definitely out there, and it's it's. It's one of the um, main factors that's leading to some divisions within the silos of dentistry, because um, on this on the standard orthodonture side, there has uh, ever since sleep apnea has been uh, described, basically, uh, which is since the late 60s, there's been this um, a, a very defensive uh, sort of tone towards, well, what we're doing is not causing sleep apnea. And so there's a lot of publications about how the airway size, you know, because a lot of orthodonture is about pulling the teeth back into correct alignment so that the, the smile is very pretty. But what's happening is, you know, with the retractive sort of forces, it is literally shrinking the size of the mouth. Now, once you get into the narrative of, wow, there is a line of scientific evidence that suggests that all of this malocclusion that we're seeing is not genetic. You know, this is not, we weren't, we weren't programmed to have crowded mouths. We weren't programmed to require our wisdom teeth to be removed. 
right? What we've discovered in the fossil record is that pre-industrial skulls, so not long enough ago for the genetics to be different, but pre-industrial skulls had a full complement of teeth, including all their wisdom teeth, and their jaws were wider, and their faces were broader, uh, and that meant that their nasal passages were more uh, allowing for, for airflow. So when we start to think about the fact that one of the moving parts of sleep apnea is not just how floppy is your airway, but what does your, your face look like? Is it narrow? Um, do you have a, a, a chin that is backward and small? You know, those elements are associated with sleep apnea. Absolutely. And, and the, the reason for it is postulated to be basically industrialized civilization that we're, we're chewing differently and we're eating differently from the word go. And we're, so, you know, we're eating processed foods that are, are much less difficult to chew. And many of us were raised with bottles, which is very different sculpturally on the, on the mid face than it is to have, you know, breastfeeding and all of that sort of tongue working that roof of the mouth that shapes the, uh, the, the, the hard palate very differently than it does if you're sort of dribbling stuff in from a, from gravity in a, in a bottle. It's extraordinary that that would only happen or begin to happen since, as you said, the Industrial Revolution, which was only a couple of hundred years ago. It's, it's, it blows my mind to yeah, think that yeah. the ramifications have occurred uh, across the world in that short period of time. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's something that um, it's very hard to look at because the repercussions of that line of of thought are potentially devastating for for folks who are practicing standard retractive orthodontia. And so I think it's it's a very hard thing to sort of look at. And and from what I've seen on my journey, many people just they can't do it. They can't they can't reflect on this idea because it 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 reflects uh, adversely on on sort of professional choices, you know? You're obviously a proponent of nose breathing as opposed to mouth breathing. I remember I went through a phase there a couple of years ago of taping my mouth closed uh, overnight. Um, can you talk to me about your opinion of that? So this is another place you're going to get some division of thought. My, um, those who are opposed to mouth taping probably have never done it, I would, I would say. But the, the concern is, well, what if you vomit or something like that? You know, um, what if you aspirate? And, you know, if if someone feels that they're at risk to not being able to get the tape off because they've got mobility impairment, then those are things that I would sort of think about more carefully. But as for the physiology of it, um, nose breathing is just different from mouth breathing. It is just functionally different. Uh, it places uh, um, uh, more nitric oxide into the air that we breathe. So nitric oxide is, is sort of produced by the paranasal sinuses, and that is a natural antimicrobial. So it's actually nasal breathing is our first line of defense against getting sick. And not only that, when there's more nitric oxide in the air you breathe, nitric oxide uh, sort of made a name for itself when Viagra hit the market. It's a, it's a vasodilator uh, in certain places. And so what this allows one to do is nasal breathing just allows better alveolar extraction of the oxygen that we're breathing down at the, you know, the air sac level of our lungs. So it's just a better way to do it. If you mouth breathe during development, it changes the shape of your face. So it means that your face will develop much more narrow side to side. And it means that your jaw is going to develop in a, in a retracted and, and smaller fashion. So, you know, we've all seen the, the uh, 
the, the, the pictures of the, the so-called village idiot, it's always somebody standing there kind of with his mouth drooped open, um, uh, trying to breathe through his mouth, you know? So do I believe in, in mouth taping? Absolutely I do, because it, it's something that you can do to functionally test something. And you can see for yourself, you know, can I make this work? Now, many people have trouble and they, they feel constant nasal congestion and they say, well, I could never do that. And they start to get squirmy and they, they feel like you're trying to suffocate them or something like that. So for those folks who are interested in nose breathing, I would strongly recommend that you get into the work of one of your fellow countrymen, Patrick McEwen. He's made it a career talking about uh, nasal breathing, and he's got some great YouTube videos about how to decongest your nose without drugs. So it's, it's, it's good stuff. And for anybody who's interested in, in this rabbit hole, I'd strongly recommend they check out his work. On that subject, can you define for us um, something that I've heard you talk about before, nasal disuse syndrome? Yeah, for sure. So the more you breathe through your mouth instead of your nose, the more the nose tends to become swollen. The nose is actually filled with erectile tissue and just, you know, different place, similar to genitals, right? But that means that it's vascular and it can become very engorged. And so nasal disuse syndrome is kind of what happens when you um, habitually avoid nose breathing. It decides, well, okay, I'm just going to swell up. And the converse to that is, though, that many people think of that as, oh, my gosh, I, I'm just a mouth breather and I will never get beyond this. And they may start using uh, over-the-counter decongestant sprays to try and alleviate that, which is a terrible idea for a chronic condition because that stuff is caustic. And, uh, and it's a real irritant on the nose. Um, uh, the more you use it, the more you're going to need it. You get a rebound engorgement of that same uh, microvasculature in there. So, um, you know, again, uh, nasal disuse syndrome is the result of not using it. You get symptoms of nasal congestion and it fools you into believing that you're going to be this way forever. There are ways to learn to become a more talented nasal breather, to be sure. In your treatment, you also recommend to some people suffering from sleep apnea and who are suffering from insomnia at the same time. I know you're a proponent of CBTI. Can you talk to us about this? For sure. Wow. So this is a, another great and complex subject. CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia is what that stands for. And um, in the in my tribal literature, the, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, Western Medical, there's a lot of good data that CBTI can be useful in many different contexts, you know, whether your insomnia is, is in the context of cancer pain or whether your insomnia is in the context of being uh, a, a traumatized combat vet. You know, so what is CBTI? CBTI is um, an understanding that a lot of our... Uh, experience of insomnia is innately behavioral and how we process the event. Insomnia is a terribly lon lonely thing to experience. And for the people who really suffer with it, um, it becomes a source of um, expected psychological distress that happens every single night. And they, um, there's a lot of self-talk that goes along with that experience, such as, you know, oh my God, I have to get to sleep. That meeting tomorrow is so important. And, and the self-talk becomes, you know, abusive. It becomes, um, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. You know, it must be my depression, you know, and so people will self-label and usually it's, it's pretty um, self-abusive talk. And so the whole experience is, is very, very uncomfortable and very lonely. And, um, and, and so when people come to the doctor, it's usually they're, they're desperate 
and they just want relief and they, you know, if they had an experience of relief with Ambien, which is our version of Zolpidem over here in the States, um, that's a, a commonly prescribed drug. If they had a good experience with it once, then they're going to believe that all they need to do is talk you into that and their life would be golden. So teaching CBTI has the added challenge of people don't want it because they'd really rather have the drug because they know it worked once. So th this is why, again, the empowerment project is about helping people understand the why of CBTI. And that means understanding the nuts and bolts of how sleep actually works, you know? And uh, so, you, you know, I would usually teach my patients about how, you know, how, how does the wiring of sleep wake actually function? There's something in, in the business that we call the two process model of sleep wake regulation. And it's really easy to understand when you explain it, but process S and process C is what we call it in the business. Process S stands for sleep pressure. Okay. That idea is almost like fumes in the attic. Okay. If the attic is your brain, the more you're awake and the more you're doing stuff and the more you're kind of active or perhaps under stress, medical illness can be a stress or two, but the more you're doing that, the longer you're doing that, the more fumes will build up in your attic. Okay. Those fumes make us sleepy. Falling asleep, being in a brainwave that is looking like sleep on an EEG basically changes the way your brain handles fluid. Isn't that interesting? So when, as soon as you fall asleep, it's like opening the windows and letting a cross breeze fan out that attic and ventilate it out. In your brain, it's actually that the, the cells of the central nervous system change their conformation so that there is more fluid exterior to the cell. There's more extracellular fluid, which means that a convective current can be established between from the CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid, which the brain is sort of swimming in, through this, the, the central nervous system itself and out through the, through the venous drainage. So that's the windows of the attic opening. Isn't that awesome? So that's, that's called the glymphatic system, if anybody wants to read about it. But if you think about that, though, it's not all about the fumes, right? Because, you know, if, if, if you're kind of doing the, the mental, mental experiment, I wake up in the morning feeling, okay, okay, so my attic is well ventilated. But then, you know, by midday, shouldn't I be like half as sleepy as I'm going to be at, at the end of the day? Like, isn't, why is it that I can feel fine and then get sleepy right after noon and then feel great again? At, like, what's, the, what's going on? That is not just fumes in the attic. And the answer to that is process C. It's a two-process model. So the C stands for circadian. Okay. And what that means, circadian actually means around a day. And our brains are set up to survive in this wonderful place called Earth with its 24 hour cycle. And so that means that our brains know about the whole attic problem. And they have parts of the brain that are called collectively the ascending reticular activating system. These are all neurons in the deep brain. Their sole responsibility is to make you awake. So like if you did a real evil experiment and you burned up all of those neurons with a with an electrical probe, you would now have a person who is unable to be awake. That person's uh, brainwaves would look like slow wave sleep and they'd be in a coma forever. Okay, so the ability to be awake is structural. And that's I think that's cool. But even more cool is that the volume knob of how much awakeness they're producing, that volume knob is always in motion. And it dials its way steadily up over the course of the day. Attic fumes, remember? So it's helping us stay ahead of the attic fumes. At the end of the day, like the two hours right before your natural fall asleep time, what we call in the business, the circadian sleep phase, 
There's a rough eight hour time frame on everyone's circadian clock that's permissive for a prolonged nocturnal sleep interval, right? The two hours right before that circadian sleep phase, your ascending reticular activating system, your ARAS, is on full steam ahead, full steam. And in the business, what we see, and when the circadian researchers named this part of the circadian cycle, they called it the forbidden zone. Isn't that cool? It's like a sci-fi movie from the 50s, right? But the forbidden zone. And the reason they called it that is when they were looking at their double plotted um, uh, sleep-wake cycles, when you can see sort of like these patterns across time, there was these this time frame in everyone's circadian cycle where sleep just didn't seem to happen there. You know, if people were allowed to sort of do whatever they want and sleep whenever they wanted to, there's a time frame in their circadian cycle where sleep just avoided it. And, and they called it the forbidden zone for that reason. Well, what that means is that the forbidden zone is a time frame of elevated ascending reticular activating system activity, right? I think of it as if you want to go get a beer and there's a big frat boy sitting on the beer keg, the forbidden zone is the frat boy, okay? The beer is the sleep. Okay, you want to get some beer, you got to go through me. Okay, so people who come to the doctor saying, I can't sleep at night, one of the most common things we see is something called delayed circadian sleep phase. It's like a social jet lag. Okay, because right there in the middle of the forbidden zone, there is an event, a circadian event that's measurable. It's called the dim light melatonin onset or the DILMO. That's what people in the business call it. I call him in the book, Captain Dilmo, like he's an airplane captain, because what Captain Dilmo does is when he comes to work, he tells you to put your tray tables up and he gets the plane ready to land. Okay. Um, and, you know, uh, get the, the, the uh, drink service out of the aisles. We're going to get the landing gear deployed correctly, all of this stuff. So the thing about Captain Dilmo is he is exceptionally shy and he doesn't like light, especially blue wavelength light. So you can actually suppress him. Literally, Dilmo is measured by having people spit cereal in, into a cup because you can detect melatonin in saliva. And if under dim light conditions, there will be a time frame when all of a sudden the concentration just goes way up. Okay, And that's usually in the one to two hours um, before your natural fall asleep onset. Right. So what we're doing as a civilized world is we are making Captain Dilmo late for his shift every single day. Okay. So he is showing up when you go into your bedroom and turn your, turn your lights out. And what that means is that his shift is a pre preordained duration. You can think of it that way. So the dim light melatonin onset is delayed because of looking at screens and being around bright lights and things like that. And then it's offset is delayed as well. And the way that's experienced by the patient is difficulty getting going in the morning, okay? Because you've still got melatonin clouding your brain. So what people learn from this is I have insomnia and I need um, a frappuccino in the morning, okay? So this is, this is the adaptive habits. And so when someone experiences insomnia because they're arguing with the frat boy on the beer keg, the solution for that is not to drug the frat boy. The solution for that is to change the timing of their circadian rhythm, and this gets us back to the question about CBTI, okay? When I teach people about the two-process model, then we can go back and we can explore and they can be encouraged to inventory what they're doing that may be hurting our fellow teammate, Captain Dilmo, you know? And they'll, they'll be able to understand and explore what effect light has in the morning. 
Um, so if you're getting going late and you're kind of driving to work with your sunglasses on, you're missing the opportunity for that light to push backwards on your circadian rhythm. Okay. Once people understand the mechanistics of it and you give them the agency to understand and, and, and sort of make decisions, then the CBTI instructions are, they, they're, they don't come across like eat your vegetables anymore. They come across like, here's what the cave looks like. What do you want to do? And here's what I understand. And here's what we can try. So some of the things that we tell people to do in CBTI, one of them is kind of counterintuitive. It's called sleep restriction therapy. Okay. So what we, what I would tell people is um, if I got a strong signal that they had this social jet lag, circadian misalignment, delayed circadian sleep phase. If I get a signal that that's happening to them, I'll say, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set a rise time that you're going to keep for every day of the week. Okay. And, uh, and that's got to work for work days and weekdays. We want to, we want to make sure your process C gets just nailed down and we want it to be in the right place. So we're going to decide when you're going to get up every day of the week. And then we're going to count backwards from that six hours. That's your new bedtime. Prior to that bedtime, you're going to give yourself 30 minutes of proactive wind down time, proactive wind down time. That's where we're courting, deliberately courting Captain Dilmo to come to work. Low lights, sort of no social stress. It's very relaxing music, chamomile tea. But we're going to give you only six hours to ventilate your attic. Okay, that's not enough. We're doing that on purpose. Because remember, those fumes, those are internal sleeping potion. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to bend, we're going to just basically bypass the guy on the keg, we don't have to talk to him, we're going to wait until he goes away, put you in bed, then we're going to get you up and say it's midnight, we're going to get you up at six in the morning, and you're going to be sleep deprived. That's cool. That's awesome because the next day you're gonna have 20% more fumes in your, in your brain, and that's cool. Now, as you start being able to fall asleep easily at that delayed bedtime, we can now start to inch it back 15, 30 minutes a day until we get you that eight hour, that sweet spot, okay? We take the stress out of the experience of being awake until too late. We, we help people um, relearn how to talk about it and give themselves the self-talk of, oh, you know, if I'm not sleeping well tonight, that'll be more fumes for tomorrow. I'll sleep better tomorrow. So you give them agency to get them out of that at the same time as telling them to do the sleep restriction therapy. This is why I think the empowerment part is so important. If you just tell them to do sleep restriction therapy, many times people will look at you like you got two heads and they think those academics don't know what they're doing. I can't sleep. And he tells me to be in bed less. What a moron. <laughs> Another time I had a patient come to me and, and said that she felt so insulted because uh, her prior sleep doctor had told her that she had poor sleep hygiene. She thought that she was being told that she was dirty and she didn't want to go back. Language, man, you know? Well, the, it's extraordinary, really, how fun you make it. Can I mention as well, because you were talking there at length about the circadian rhythm, you have a great illustration in the book of the circadian wheel. And I, I love the way that you make all of this medicine and this science so accessible and so visible and so relatable, particularly for people yeah, that, who are intimidated by this condition that they may have. That's exactly why I did it that way. Um, the... Um, the circadian rhythm wheel is is an awesome tool. I really love it. Um, I used a, a less beautiful version of that in clinic 
uh, for a long time. And, and when I uh, explain that the two process model to people, and literally it's it's like watching lights come on in people's eyes. Seeing is believing. When you can spin this around and show them where their forbidden zone is and see why it matters, that there's, you know, there's where Captain Dilma is supposed to be. And this is where you're, you know, you're um, playing violent video games, you know, with the lights on because you can't sleep. You know, once people make the connection that what they're doing is is a big part of this solution, then uh, um, everything changes. But for people who are interested in the Rhythmo Wheel, you can get that perfectly free. It's on our website. So www.empowered, E-M-P-O-W-E-R-E-D, sleep apnea, A-P-N-E-A, A-P-N-E-A dot com. And uh, one of the choices is Rhythmo Wheel. All you have to do is print it out and you can cut it out and put it together yourself. So, Well, what I will do is I'll put a link to all of your, your socials and your website uh, in the show notes for this episode. Oh, cool, cool, cool. I'll, cool, I'll do that, you. no problem. Just uh, before, because time has almost run out on us, before I let you go, if people listening have concerns themselves or about their partner, I'm presuming your advice is to go to their local healthcare professional to seek uh, some advice on whatever sleeping condition that they may think they have absolutely uh, this is something that uh, you know many providers have a, a seat at the table and so many people are weighing in on on the fate of those uh, who've been diagnosed with sleep apnea now um, so i would say arm yourself with knowledge um, the uh, empowered sleep apnea podcast contains the information that you need um, the book is, of course, available if you if you wanted to buy that and give it to your doctor so you can talk in the same language. I strongly encourage that. Um, but uh, but you can get the knowledge perfectly free from our podcast. And I would encourage you to go in as a as an empowered and educated person, too. Well, there's been a whole lot of education for me and hopefully the listeners this evening. Thank you so much, Dr. Dave McCarthy, all the way uh, from the mountain time zone in America uh, this afternoon, where it's it's lunchtime, I think, for you. But uh, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate all of your advice and your, your knowledge. There's a lot of value there. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you found that interview loaded with value. If you enjoyed listening to it and indeed any other episode on the Happy Habit podcast series, please like, subscribe, share and do leave the podcast a positive review. Until next time, stay happy. Stay happy.